Welcome to Write Good, the only podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. We've talked about bodies on this podcast, but today, we're talking about spaces. A sense of place can ground your story, or create a mood, or give it something really unique. Unfortunately, in an era in which we are all way too online, it's easy to neglect this and stick our characters in a weird featureless void. So how can we escape the set design from THX 1138? One way is by engaging with nature. Here to talk about this is Ashley Adams. Ashley, you you know about nature. Tell us about your connections with nature. Yes, hello. This has been kind of a long time coming, right? Because I think I remember when I was first getting into the orbit, you're like, someday we will talk about a nature thing, and now we've done it, which I'm, ex- I'm super excited about. So my background is I've formally studied English and creative writing. I have an MFA in it, whatever, but... But my bachelor's was in fisheries and wildlife. So, or as some people called it, oh, so you got our wildlife management in uh, Michigan, where my home state was, the Department of Natural Resources, so DNR. They're like, oh, you got a degree in DNR. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. So my first love has always been kind of the land and wildlife. I've worked at bird sanctuaries. I've worked with the park service and the forest service. I feel like I'm a interviewing for a job right now. This is giving me horror flashbacks right now. Oh. Uh, <laughs> oh no, no, I'm joking. Uh, it is because I definitely said a few things in like shop interviews, but I used to volunteer with like wildlife rescue, so I've, I've wrestled some animals. And I still love nature, even if it's maybe not the thing I'm pursuing professionally as much anymore. I will say it as an artist, it's still something I write about. My thesis as a creative writing person was very centered in nature and science. I think there's still a lot of, there's a little crossover. So that's where I came as I as someone that's worked in the natural resource field and still really loves it and has a mission to, uh, we'll discuss later, but I'm going to get everyone out, Aldo Leopold, as I call it. We're going to get you mm-hmm. all, you motherfuckers, to read Sand County Almanac. Um, but we'll discuss that later. <laughs> so yeah, that's a little bit about uh, my background. And specifically, I say I have a fisheries and wildlife degree, but I, it was wildlife biology because people will be like, oh, what do you know about fish? And I'm like, not a lot. I'll be quite frank. Um, fish people are weird. I was a wildlife person, which is also weird. But anyway, uh, so that's that's the story of Ashley. Very nice. Very nice. Now, let's talk a little bit about how nature is approached or depicted in a lot of contemporary speculative fiction. I, I feel like a lot of contemporary speculative fiction has a real problem with bodies and spaces in that you kind of feel like you're in a white void populated by disembodied consciousnesses and people don't seem to have a body and people don't seem to really exist in places we're all we're i guess we're all just too fucking online you know we're too online and and it's nerds who are especially online writing this stuff and i admit that this is something i have a little bit of trouble with too i talking to you i start realizing like wow i don't really engage with nature very much in my writing that's that's not good yeah i think i think that is something i definitely notice in general is at least in speculative fiction this kind of reduction away from place this is not universal we could talk about like the trends of how specfic has approached like nature and place and there's the current which i have problems with the term but it is, does exist climate fiction or cli-fi which i find oh uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> i hate that i'm like climate fiction I'm like ah, eh, fine but when they say cli-fi i'm like barf Ugh. barf barf 
Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of it comes from, I think, stuff we've talked about in the past that kind of, like, cine- cinema talk just came up with a word of, yeah. of, of writing, um, I think, which places an emphasis a lot on dialogue and not so much on place. Um, just, yeah, I just noticed that there is, like, not as much or as much as I'd like place. Again, not universal, because somebody might come and be like, well, this thing you know, did, wrote a whole, was a whole thing about trees, and I'll be like, cool, awesome. Um, just kind of general trends, I notice, is that there's a, definitely a reduction in place, and I think, yeah, from this, the kind of movieification of everything, and so maybe some other features, I think it, we'll talk a little bit about kind of the, the way we relate to uh, nature and place when we are maybe not in an area that is traditionally perceived as a natural spot. I think there's a lot mm. to talk about there, not to jump ahead of myself, but yeah, the idea that we don't see because we may be in a more human-dominated environment or a suburban or an urban, we don't necessarily see that as a cool place to talk about, but it totally is. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's stuff I, I've, I've definitely seen. I would say it's some of the stuff that pisses me off the worst. That is, like, my bugbear in bad spec fic is that I'm like, where's the sense of place? This is the whole point of, like, this genre is that you can do crazy things with place, right? And then you're all yeah. like, I don't know, man. Yeah, it kind of makes me think of of a lot of MCU movies and that it's all sort of filmed in a in a green cube and no one's really interacting with anything around them. You're not filming them anywhere and and it's just a background put in and weirdly enough they always put in very generic backgrounds, which is another thing that drives me crazy like okay, you got the technology to put in to to put your heroes in anywhere cool and the places are like warehouse, airplane hangar, parking lot sort of sort of some sand somewhere that's really you could you could put this someplace cooler than that you could put it on the great wall of china you could put it in like a really cool jungle or something and you're, you're just putting it there dude we gotta right. bring back fucking jungles and stories like i feel like there's so many stories i read i'm like this should be in a, a jungle uh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> jungles rock i i kind of get why which is that a lot of jungle adventure stories come from this era of very racist and colonialist and imperialist uh, attitudes, so there's probably an association with that. But jungles are really cool, also. Yeah, jungles don't have to be racist, but I think... They don't gotta be. But I think you went to... I said, we were, we're like, same hat, same brainwave right now, because I was thinking one of the reasons, too, I think people may be resistant to kind of uh, richer environmental settings is one there's a cat yelling at them um yeah there is hi harley <laughs> and two there is that history of i'm thinking of like our early kind of golden era pulp stuff which is still which is very tied into and again the trends i'm gonna be describing is very western anglo based yeah. so yeah you know and again not everything does this but I'll, i want to talk a little bit about some exceptions uh, which i think is cool but basically yeah there's a lot of the idea of again the jungle will be on venus but it's literally just it's just like a manifest destiny story but on venus with mm-hmm. some gleep glops in place of problematic depictions of indigenous people gleep glops in this case mean aliens and so you get these really lurid lush descriptions of place but it is very exotifying and titillating so i think some people are always a little bit worried about falling into that which is fair and it still happens to this day Mm-hmm. Um, I think some interesting trend is in speculative fiction, I think especially towards the science fiction side, there is, and I think also towards the dystopia side, 
is the this kind of emerging like there's kind of a flip side of a very emerging and persistent climate and ecological based writing so around the 50s 60s 70s when we're starting to see our our kind of modern environmental movement you know you get lots of writers like Ursula Quint, K. Le Guin pops up a lot. John Bruner is another guy that I know does a lot of, like, he did a lot of eco-fiction um, that you kind of see addressing the environment. Usually pollution was the big thing back then. It's the whole thing, obviously, but that was their mm-hmm. fixation. And then, of course, we have our kind of contemporary analogy is the climate fiction, Cli-Fi Bleh. Um And I would say I even see it sometimes... Uh, I think an interesting thing I've noticed, especially in near future science fiction, is that the world building and its execution is sometimes good, sometimes bad. But there's a very interesting Mm. trend of, like, they're writing the future where climate, the effects of what we predict will happen when climate crisis happens, so, like, rising sea levels. Uh, One example I put in notes is I was reading How High We Go in the Dark by Sagoya Nagamatsu. Great short story collection. I could go on all day about that short story collection. It's kind of about climate change, but I I wouldn't say it's necessarily like a climate book, but it kind of is. Anyway, it's more about grief. A lot of the stories are like, a lot of them are set in Japan, and eventually by the end, uh, not to get too spoilery, but literally Japan is now a series of, well, it's a series of islands, but it's a series of a lot smaller islands now because the water levels have come up. So, and there's seawalls everywhere, and there's actually talking about like how depressing these seawalls are, and like you don't see the ocean anymore. So Mm. I think that's something you, you do see kind of on the flip side is that there is... There is a small but significant, I think, tackling of at least the climate crisis in speculative fiction. You raised the point that like nature is really cool. We were talking, I was talking sci-fi and fantasy, but you also have like horror and how like... Oh yeah horror and nature. I mean, I, I feel like horror is a little bit better about this because people tend to have bodies a little bit more in horror, but the use of, of nature and horror, it's, it's a cliche for gothic stories to take place on a spooky cold mountain for a reason. Right. Because it works. Like pl- It works. You're isolated. You're far away from shit. The the height kind of emphasizes that very often these are gothic stories about about aristocrats, about rich families looking down, but also isolated from the ordinary village. The terrain is treacherous, so you can't just leave. The forest is not your friend. Nature can make you feel very small and vulnerable as a human being because this is a space that was not designed for your personal comfort. And it will remind you of this very, very often. At least kind of what we see in horror contemporarily. I mean, even past is nature as a place for exploring our, our thoughts and fears and hopes and wants. And that I think the rest of Specfic could really embrace that as well. Really, everyone yeah. can. Yeah, you can make the land a metaphor. Do it. Do Maybe. it. Fucking do the shit out of it. It rocks. I love that shit. Don't do it as Manifest Destiny. That was fucked up. I'll give you that. But like, do it as, I don't know, a metaphor for depression or something. I don't, I don't know. Figure it out. Do whatever. It doesn't matter. As long as you're doing something yeah. with it. You can do that. Yeah. You can do nature as a as a metaphor for exploring things. It's not. That's a thing you forget. But you can do it. I'm telling you, you can. It's free. Yeah, yeah. And also, consider animals, too. Something that kind of drives me crazy is fantasy writers who've never ridden a horse. I am not a horse girl. I am not a horse expert. 
but I did take horseback riding lessons as a kid. Yes, Harley. And it's really striking to me, you can kind of tell who has actually ridden a horse versus who hasn't by how they describe horseback riding. Like, a horse isn't a car that you just sort of get onto and go. If you've ridden a horse, you know that they're very finicky, very emotional, very vulnerable creatures. They have surprisingly delicate ankles, despite being these massive, like, thousand-pound fucking beasts. They're, they're very emotional. They have severe anxiety. <laughs> they're all BoJack horsemen, basically, where they're very large but very emotionally unstable. They're constantly throwing a shoe, getting hurt. They get tired. They get hungry. They need to shit and piss all the time. And they can be temperamental. Some horses are much more difficult to control than others. Some horses are a lot wilder. Some horses well, just aren't friendly to you. I, I totally, I just remembered this. Something, I, I remember people critiquing fantasy stories specifically because they would all ride non-fixed male horses a lot. Oh, wow. So okay, that's sure, because buddy. it's like a cool thing to be like, ah, I got on the like the Mustang. Got on my stallion. Yeah, my stallion yeah. and stuff. And no, most people ride the gelding, right? Uh, or maybe a, yeah. a mare even. Um, I mean, that's George R. R. Martin actually made that a point in uh, the first uh, Game of Thrones, the uh, Son of Ice and Fire book, Game of Thrones. Uh, that was actually a big plot point in like, what the hell do they call that thing where they like have their lances and their they're running at each other. What the hell is that thing called? Jousting. Jousting. Thank you. I'm here for nature. I'm not here for medieval time, leisure time. So, yeah, that was actually a thing where, like, the there was the mountain and then one of those other guys. There's so many guys in those books. And he rode a mare and specifically because he knew the guy was riding a non, and not a gelding. He was riding a stallion. And the horse was like, whoa. People definitely don't know what to do with horses. Um, yeah. And I, I don't expect people to be fucking cowboys, but horseback riding is not that inaccessible. It is, it is not that hard to sort of take a little horseback riding lesson or something on a ranch. Just if you get spend an afternoon, pay the money, ride on a horse for a couple hours, kind of get a feel for it. Well, and I think that could go extend to... One of the things I was interested in when you brought that up is just in general, how we view animals and the environment. How easy is it? Like, you have your cool fantasy story, right? And you ride some creature and it's how easy is it just to be like, I don't know, it's like a horse. doesn't matter if it's a dragon. Yeah. It's a horse. Just in general, why people have the relationships with the animals they do and why they use them or don't use them. You don't see a lot of thinking about that. And again, I know that's a higher level world building like, woo thing. I love that stuff because that was like all I did in my fisheries and wildlife degree. That was the whole mm -hmm. thing we were obsessed about is how do people in the environment actually relate and use each other? I'm not sure how related, but I think an interesting thing to think about in the real world, an example of how animals shape what we do is our relationship to the wheel. A lot of people, mm. um, a lot of people, a lot of idiot, shitty, racist people will be like, ah, the Mesoamericans were not as advanced because they did not regularly use a wheel as a tool. And a lot of people theorize the reason that is, again, this is a theory, um, it, so we're not quite sure, but one of the theories comes along is they didn't have anything that could be a pack animal realistically in most of these places. They didn't have horses. Where, mm. I mean, horses were wiped out like thousands of years ago during the Ice Age. So, you know, they had a wheel. They, they had it as a toy in a lot of places. So that's something to think about as you're a spec fiction writer is like, okay, if I have this thing here, this animal here, or this plant here... How does that actually shape the way people people do? 
And I'm not saying you have to become a scientist. Like, if you want a potato in your Euro fantasy story, I don't I don't care. I'm not going to come to your house and stuff. But it's something... Yeah, it's fine. Put a potato in you there. You put a potato in there. But it, it is something to think about. And again, I'm a dork, so I love thinking about that stuff. But it is something something to think about, if you, especially if you, you brand yourself as a, a big world builder. And mm-hmm. you just end up writing a world that looks basically like ours. Except sometimes the plants are, like, purple or whatever. Like, okay, cool. That would change the way society functions radically probably but it's fine whatever it's the same (laughs) yeah 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 it it feels a bit like people it it feels as though a lot of writers are a little too suburban and maybe a little too computery so they don't spend all that much time outside and granted i'm not a rugged outdoorsman myself but Man, go on a hike or something. Every once in a while, please go outside. Because uh, it is really, really striking and a little frustrating to me to see a, a genre that advertises itself on on being imaginative and bringing you to exotic, exciting places, and it all just kind of feels like you're in a suburban parking lot still. I think some maybe in some reason we see this place and setting kind of dissolve in later works is uh, we're becoming incestuous in our genre while your classic genres, like obviously they read mm-hmm. stuff with spec fic, but they would read outside the genre. They would pull from a lot of their experiences. I'm thinking like Tolkien, who read a lot and did a lot. And then now everyone's writing. They're not even writing yeah. from Lord of the Rings. They're writing from the... like the simulacra of the simulacra of the simulacra of Lord of the Rings, you know, the D&D campaign of the D&D campaign of the movie, of the book, of Dragonlance, or whatever the fuck, you know, that was based on Tolkien somewhere. So that is why nature can get very reductive in these, and also everything gets reductive. It's because they're, mm. they're just taking a classic and they're just writing from it, or writing from the derivative of the classic five times removed down the chain. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how we might approach nature and place in interesting ways as speculative fiction writers. We might talk a little bit about some examples of of spec fic that approaches nature or a sense of place in interesting ways. I'll bring up first in sci-fi, we recently had a book club episode about this. The Demolished Man by Alfred Bester has some really neat settings. There's a psychedelic melted... I think, paint factory where a psychic fortune teller runs a burlesque house. There's a nature preserve in space where people go camping in a swamp, but it's like a space swamp. There's a lot of really fun, weird settings that actually affect the way the characters act. And there's, there is this real fun sense of adventure, and it is a very well-packed novel. Okay, I have a whole crackpot theory now. I kind of came up with the last few days that I think one of the worst things that happened to science fiction was us figuring out you can't live on Venus, realistically. Yeah. Like, I'm like... Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, um, I've been reading uh, me... Yeah, sci-fi was better when it had zero science in it, when it was just go to Venus in a hot air balloon, Venus is populated by tall, merciless women. That was the good shit. We need to go back to that. Yeah, me and a friend were reading this really popular dystopia science fiction 
And it's like, it has a little bit of a throwback planetary romance space opera thing. They're like, oh yeah, we're Mm -hmm. on Venus and stuff and we eat clams and stuff like that. I'm like, yes! Yeah, that's right. Go to Venus, baby! Like, yeah. Yeah, I know you can't live there, but like, sometimes a scientist- Fucking fix it. Figure it out. Scientists are wrong sometimes. So like, Yeah, yeah. Let the scientists be wrong. (laughs) So that's my crackpot theory is that uh, science fiction has really been on a downward turn since ever we've- since the Venera missions, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, write a paper about that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know it's this is the obvious one. We already mentioned him, but Tolkien, he described the shit out of those forests, man. He he loved describing forests. He he loved it. He loved that shit. There's so much forest in it, but it's great. It's giving you the sense that these are people on an adventure they're far away from home they're they're in some trees that are being weird they're hunting venison it's beautiful i love it i'm gonna t- i i remember i was in the discord and i i don't know if you saw but i was freaking out because i hadn't like i when i revisited tolkien that was kind of one of my summer projects because i hadn't read it since i was a teen and i did not have patience for it as a teen i was like <laughs> these aren't the movies so if you read it as a kid, go read it as an adult if you haven't, because you'll have more patience for it, hopefully. But the scene where with, where they first start introducing Shelob, holy shit, that's some good shit. And yeah. the tension there and the way the animal is described, I don't know if Shelob's even can be considered an animal. It's like a bean, it's a force. And the tension, I was like, Tolkien can fucking write some horror when he wants to. God damn. Yeah, it's a big spider, but the way he describes it is just... It's so good. Honestly, the movie could not capture this feeling of tension because in a movie you'll just see Big Spider. And you're like, wow, that's fucked up. It's Big Spider. But in the book, it's yeah. oh, such a fleshed out experience. I know I'm babbling, but I'm like, God, it was so fucking good. So go, yeah. go back and read, uh, if nothing else. I mean, all the cool places. There's like Moria's. Even the scary places are so fucking good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Moria's cool. The Minds of Moria really gave me the creeps as a kid. And then I also put, uh, well, we got on, we got to talk about our classic on the sci-fi side is, uh, motherfucking Dune. Dune. Dune is, Dune is so good with place. I always say Dune is the- It's really good. I mean, he was inspired by the landscape around him. He was inspired by the Pacific Northwest, uh, sand dunes. And so, like, the sense of place in there is so strong. And that's actually, not to go out too off topic, but it's one of my gripes about the movie. Ah, it's really, like, kind of- makes it a little gray but that's just the french canadians that's what are you gonna do yeah yeah they're cold people <laughs> dune for as problematic as it is it really does nail place i always say dune is the best book that cannot be written today and that's a, a good reason but it, it fucking nails arrakis if you want to write like good sand dunes and stuff like that dune's good <laughs> yeah yeah uh here's another one that we read for the book club the elementals by michael mcdowell it's very interesting. It's a Southern Gothic novel, but whereas a lot of Gothic novels like Darkness and Cold, instead, this novel uses the oppressive Southern heat at this beach house. It's bright, it's sunny, there's fucking sand everywhere. Sand plays a very important part of this book. And it's this overwhelming, oppressive heat and sun sets this brain-killing southern gothic mood it's really really interesting and really effective yeah that book was i mean like i said so much horror yeah southern gothic is just in general i'm just gonna i'm thinking of that king of the hill when bobby when they go to new mm-hmm. orleans and he's like i'm a i'm a flower wilted and stuff like that 
Southern stuff. Southern writers know how to write like good, wilting story. Um, yeah, the the way Southern writers, Southern Gothic writers use heat, is terrific. I feel like the best writers for place are from places that are either really hot or really cold. Really fucking cold. Maybe that's the problem. There's too much of this middle latitude. Like, it's too. There's too much California. Right? There's too much elite coast liberals and stuff like that. We need to get someone that lives in shittier places to, to write. Uh, yeah, some. some some people from the Midwest where it snows way too much. Oh, dude, we, if we want to talk about stories, I, I hope if we'll get to it, I have a whole reading list and I got some things to say about my, my northerners and how they whip ass at writing place. Yeah. Yeah. So we got the elementals again from a previous book club, the works of uh, Horacio Quiroga. He, he's a short story writer from Uruguay. He was a mix of, Edgar Allan Poe and Rudyard Kipling. This man loved the jungle, but had a healthy fear of it, and his stories are full of jungle body horrors, carnivorous bugs, big mean snakes, fucked up ants. It's really, really good. He, It's super interesting, because some of his stories feel a little bit like proto-body horror, a, a kind of pre-Cronenberg type stuff, and that, and that, yeah, it is just jungle animals doing stuff, but it's doing stuff that's really, really really gross and really fucked up and upsetting uh, and it is terrific yeah that's that's i saw it on the list and i was like that's an author i'm not familiar with which i will definitely need to check out i'm always up for especially reading more latin america works for sure yeah 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 we did do a book club on him and i think it was uh, what was it julio cortazar it was called latin it was like latinx horror double feature or something like that hell yeah yeah. Well, and then speaking of more wet and hot places on our list that we were going down, I have to include my man, Jeff Vandermeer, mm. if you read anything about climate fiction, which he has a f- hilarious article about why he doesn't like climate fiction as a term. I think it's worth checking <laughs> out, but I won't get into it. Jeff Vandermeer, I think if you're looking for contemporaries, especially in that climate fiction zone, he's one of my favorites. He's a guy I always go back to. I'd say Florida is like one of the most, is the most place a place can be, I think. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense to anybody but me, but it just has such a strong definition, has such strong imagery associated with it. And I think Jeff Vandermeer does a really good job. I think he makes a really, a lovely place out of places that are hard to love. And he can do mm. kind of those, those horror elements, but also, I don't know, I think, I actually think um, I saw a tweet that did a really good job of saying this. I won't, I won't say who I saw it from, but it was uh, that Jeff Vandermeer just loves a place for the nature of itself. He doesn't feel compelled to make it beautiful, mm. which I think is something I really resonate with is that an idea of place can be beautiful and powerful and doesn't need to be shaped necessarily under human aesthetics, which Florida is, I think that's a, something very key also to understanding Florida. Um, so yeah, go read a uh, Sudden Reach trilogy. Born is great too. I mean, he's got a whole bunch of stuff. And I actually visited the place that it's uh, inspired Annihilation. I went to St. Mark's uh, National Wildlife Refuge. It is amazing. It, it is also very, I went there and I was like, oh, I see why you would write a fucked up eco horror uh, about this place because it feels vast and overwhelming to a, a single human in some spots of it. So I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. There's also a flamingo there. His name's Pinky. He's not. Nice. He's not in the books, as far as I know. Well, I think Jeff Vandermeer is actually writing a new Southern Reach book, so maybe Pinky will be. And I should ask him if he'll put Pinky. Uh, Send him a DM because I think we might be mutuals now. Because I 
tried to see if he would uh if he knew where some birds were up there when i was up there birding uh-huh. so she'd be like pressuring him to go to sandals <laughs> uh it's right over there it's like we're in florida it's just right o- right over just go right over there right over there right over there go to sandals resort <laughs> And, okay. and of course, Ursula K. Le Guin, um, any of her works basically have a really strong sense of place. Of course, classically is like Earthsea. Earthsea's one of my favorite, just like fa- like good fantasy stories. Mm. Um, just, I, I love, I love when shit's on the ocean and has islands and stuff. I love that. Oh yeah. Ocean stories are cool. I'm a water bitch. Respect to my dry place bitches, but I'm a water bitch for sure. I like when the stories have water. Yeah. And I put friend of the pod, Andrew F. Sullivan. Has a great sense of place in both of his kind of big works that I've read. I haven't gotten to some of his other ones, but uh, Waste, which is not specfic, but does have a heightened sense of reality, I'd argue, mm-hmm. is the most Rust Belt city story I've ever read, which I appreciate as someone that grew up in the Rust Belt. And of course, mm-hmm. The Marigold, which I think you'll see that you I've been seeing pop up on some of those climate fiction lists, which like, good for him. So he has a great sense of place, which I love. Mm-hmm. And then... I'll just say, too, reading outside the genre of speculative fiction, please, please do it. Especially poetry and nonfiction are great. One recommendation I have is, damn it, my copy of Standing Count Almanac is all the way over there. I was actually going to grab it, and I'll read a copy to you all so you all can finally got you under my control. Uh, you can you can go get it. I can I can edit that out. No, leave, 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 leave this all in. Leave it all in. No, I'm, I'm joking. Uh, okay, I'm going to grab it. Just a second. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'm back. I have my copy. I actually, at one point, owned like three copies of this book. I don't know Mm -hmm. why I owned three copies, but I did. So... I thought it was really interesting. So a little aside, I always thought it was very interesting when people get upset about the classics and required reading lists and stuff. Because literally, mm-hmm. there's literally only one time in my life I've ever been pressured into reading a book to prove my intelligence and competency in the field. And it literally was Sand County Almanac at like, conferences. They'd be like, have you read Sand County Almanac? It's a fisheries and wildlife conferences. They're like, you need to. What are you doing? It's the only time I've been bullied into reading a book was a bunch of people that are wearing camo and go fishing on the weekends and stuff like that. Like I said, there's lots of really good nonfiction that really has a good sense of place. And if it's all right with you all, I'd like to read just a short section from Sound County Almanac so you can kind of see like how you can really live in a place. I think this is one of the best place-based books in existence. So, mm-hmm. so and I'm going to, of course... Um, no relation. I'm going to read this short selection from a chapter on March. So before I start, background is this book is a rumination of observations this guy made. Um, Aldo Leopold, who was a wild land manager on his farm in Wisconsin, just kind of going through the seasons being like, here's what I see and writing really beautiful things about it. And also some very devastating essays about killing wolves and stuff like that. So this is from March and it's the geese return. One swallow does not make a summer, but one skein of geese cleaving the murk of a March thaw is the spring. A cardinal whistling spring to a thaw, but later finding himself mistaken, can retrieve his era by resuming his winter silence. A chipmunk emerging for a sun bath, but fighting a blizzard, has only to go back to bed, but a migrating goose staking 200 miles of black night on a chance of finding a hole in the lake has no easy chance for the retreat. 
His arrival carries the conviction of a prophet who has burned his bridges. Ooh, that's so good. Uh, a March morning is only as drab as he who walks in it without a glance skyward, ear cocked for geese. I once knew an educated lady, banded by Phi Beta Kappa, who told me that she had never heard or seen the geese that twice a year proclaimed the revolving seasons to her well-insulated roof. Is education possibly a process of trading awareness for things of lesser worth? The goose who trades his is soon a pile of feathers. And I have one more paragraph. Um, March geese are a different story. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Although they have been shot at most of the winter, as attested by their buckshot battered pinions, they know that the spring truce is now in effect. They wind the oxbows of the river, cutting low over the now gunless points and islands, and gabbling to each sandbar as to a long-lost friend. They weave low over the marshes and meadows, greeting each newly melted puddle and pool. Finally, after a pro forma circlings of our marsh, they set wean and glide silently to the pond, black landing gear lowered and rumps white against the far hill. Once touching water, our newly arrived guests set up a honking and splashing that shakes the last thought of winter out of the brittle cattails. Our geese are home again. So that's a little passage from Sand County Almanac, so you can really see like what you can do with place. Just, I just love this book so much. Yeah, yeah. All right. So something you brought up previously is specificity. Yes. The importance of specificity when you're describing your setting. In other words, if you mention that someone sits, stops beside a tree, what kind of fucking cat? Stop it! Don't attack my fucking chair. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> um, say if a character stops beside a tree, what kind of tree is it? A tree is it indeed? Yes. What kind of tree? Who knows? It's just the way it is. Yeah. So I was thinking of ways to be like, okay, so let's say you've heard all this, you've been moved, you've been elderly appealed. Um, how do you incorporate better nature writing and play space? So one of the things I always pushed with my students and myself um, is specificity. So one example I I've been saying is, what kind of tree? Is it so? Imagine you're writing your fantasy story, you're going through a forest. It's really easy to say they're going through a forest, but I think what you can do is if you say just what type of trees are they like? Is this forest made of? And you don't have to like get in Latin mains or anything like that. But you've already created mm-hmm. such a deeper sense of place with a actually a pretty good word economy too. Because saying like a forest instead of saying it was a forest of pines and aspens or whatever that says a lot without necessarily having to say a lot in your words so i think or what kind of animal being specific i just push plants because they're everywhere and it's really easy for people to ignore plants so i think that could be a really good way if you want to elevate the place in your thing being specific i always tell my students too i've been pushing them to be more specific with their papers i'm like you ever told heard a story where you're like i don't think that's true but also the details are so specific I kind of have to believe it's true. I think it also works for when you're writing a fantasy novel, too. It just sounds realer if you're really specific. Like, well, it can't be made up because he said it was an elm. Elms are real. It's very specific. Why would he bring that up if it was false? So. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cat. He is a real pain in the ass today. I was going to say, what type of cat do you, <laughs> you have? I don't. He's a, he's a loud cat. That's the type <laughs> of cat he is. He's a jerk. <laughs> He's currently yelling at me to throw his toy, but when I try to reach it, he snatches it away and hoards it so that I I just give up. And when I give up, he comes and starts scratching at my chair because he's angry at me for not 
throwing the toy that he won't let me. Do you think we could get Harley addicted? Maybe he needs to get less involved in his environment. You think we could get him addicted to like an iPad or something? Maybe he'll like yeah, just probably. chill out. <laughs> he has no chill. This cat has no chill. <laughs> no, he does not. None. None whatsoever. Pow- it is unreasonable. He's powerful, my friend. He's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so other things you can do is just set yourself for observations. That's what Santa County Almanac is. Just sit in a spot and observe what you see. This is something I also carry from my wildlife classes. So um, while you all were studying either the blade or I guess, which was the last episode, right? Uh, the blade, or if you were, uh, I guess, studying, I don't know, math or whatever. In my classes, they told us, one of my homework assignments was like, go to the pond with all the ducks in it and just watch them and s- for like a couple hours and write down what they do. And that's your homework. Nice. Uh, I know. I got that degree f- ruled so much. And it, it can actually make you a better writer. Just sitting and observing the nature around you. How does an animal move and react? How do the plants move when the wind goes through them? Keep a little journal. What's the weather like? Like, just sitting and observing and making note of it. I know it's very basic and it sounds super obvious, but it works. That's why it's super basic and super obvious. And I think it's really easy to lose sight of that when you live a busy life, obviously. So just finding even like five, ten minutes to sit in a spot and just be like... What's going on out here? I think can could really potentially help out your writing and also probably your soul a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, go touch some grass. Um, what if I'm allergic to grass? Oh no, that's ableist. Anyway. Um. Yeah. Canceled. <laughs> oh baby, yeah, just cancel me. John Scalzi's gonna get real mad at us again. <laughs> oh yeah, I was gonna say, we made a note here of books that didn't do it well. If you, if you want to know an example of a place that doesn't do setting well, uh, you can go over to uh, a friend of this pod, other pod, Podside Picnic, and I did a whole episode about uh, Country Preservation Society and how that one drove me nuts as a, as a nature writer. Um, I won't, I've already let it, litigated that at length, but it won't Whoa, dog. It is really shitty to write a book about kaiju and refuse to describe any of the kaiju in any way, shape, or form. Buddy, don't even get me. Like I said, I, I, his, I did that. I'm like His description of the kaiju is, it looks like every kaiju you've ever seen, which is the laziest possible way to describe it. First of all, I've never myself seen a kaiju because I live in the real world. But secondly, if you're going off of movies, there's different kinds of kaiju. They're not all the same. I mean, they're they're not they're not all the same. They're very different from each other, in fact. Well, my thought first thought is I'm like, so I'm assuming these are like Godzilla kaiju and not like uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion angels, which I would classify as a type of like kaiju, which are big psychological fucked up monsters, you know? Yeah, yeah. I assume that he's like, it's not like every kaiju, and I'm like, you mean the screaming prism? I don't think it's like. I assume that it's not like that. Be pretty. Mm-hmm. That'd be pretty cool though. Yeah, the book sucks. Uh, anyway, I'm not gonna do the haterade thing. I'm gonna talk about cool stuff. Um, let's see. Uh, I also say just research and get curious is a great thing you can do. <laughs> An example of what I did is called up my friend and been like, "Yeah, how are you? What are you doing?" And I was like, "Yeah, I just spent the last two hours looking up fish scales because I just wanted to know like what are different type of fish scales." I'm describing a character in my story that has like fish scales on her body. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I need to look them up and see what types. So I described them right, even though I'm not going to use the word for them. I'm not going to say like Ganoid scale in my high fantasy story because that doesn't exist. But I need to know that they are the classic metaphor of like 
writing is the, you know, the iceberg. There's, if you ever read my story, you're going to see the line that's like, she had scales on her arm and it'll be like a 90% of it hidden about alligator gar scales or something like that. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Get curious about nature, about, about flora and fauna. Absolutely. Um, hello, Harley. Speaking of fauna. Yeah, you're in rear form tonight. You're unusually rude. <laughs> you're unusually obnoxious tonight. Yeah, you can... What do you have to say for yourself? Listen to this podcast. Observe what you hear. It's a cat. Yeah. I'm getting spanked and kissed. How do you feel about I was going to say, are you spanking... Are you, are you giving your cat a hearty slap and kissy? Yes, I am. <laughs> That's incredible. Because that is how we treat naughty boys who whine too much in this house. <laughs> um, if you do go out in nature, this is not an advised method of connecting with most um, animals. Please don't do this. You'll get a... Yes, do not spank or kiss an alligator. Um, you will get most... I was like, uh, that's true. I was thinking that. I was thinking mostly like, do, don't do it with like a squirrel. That's how you get a zoonotic. We already had COVID. We don't need whatever yeah we don't need another one of those fucking things they just they just you don't want to be the guy who somehow started a new plague by by spanking and kissing an animal don't do it in florida we got armadillos and they got leprosy remember that you know oh wow yeah yeah so there there's there's a nature fact for you you could put it in your book it could be like um (laughs) i'm just imagining this boring speculative fiction story and it just like suddenly diverges into like oh yeah here's some armadillo facts they have leprosy anyway back on topic yeah you could you could do a moby dick but it's armadillos no and just every other chapter is armadillo facts no that really questionable armadillo (laughs) facts i was gonna say i don't know I mean, sure, somebody's neurodivergent enough to come up with enough facts to do a Moby Dick on armadillos, but I'm sure not. I'm like, I don't know if there's that much to know about armadillos. I mean, there could be, but... I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. An entire chapter, multiple chapters about armadillo phrenology. <laughs> Measured the skull of this armadillo. Yeah. Um, you know, fun armadillo fact, here's another one I can give you, is that they are very, very blind. And I've scared them so many times going out hiking in Florida. Just almost walk on them all the time. Because if we're not paying attention to each other. Ugh. Just a silly, silly creature. Um, like I said, go out into nature. You'll see so many types of guys. You'll 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 meet a friend and a pal out in the, out in the bog. Yeah. Some other things you can do is obviously the classic, like, replicate what other authors do. Um, obviously don't do a plagiarism. I don't know why I feel the need to point it out, but... Um, don't do that, but you can see what they're doing and model off of. Um, one example I, I put in our notes and, and reading and we can link to maybe is one of the things I had my students do is there's this short piece by, uh, Amy Nez, who it's the soils I've eaten. So it's less than 750 word essay about like, here's all the, the taste of the different soil of places I've been. And I think that's a really good exercise and, and it gives you a, a th- way to think about place in different ways. Sensory details. Could have done a whole episode about sensory details. That's also a thing. Tied to place. Also missing a lot. Taste the dirt, guys. Yeah. Don't taste the dirt. That's how you get anthrax. But taste the dirt. Yeah. Metaphorically. No. I, I want our, our listeners to go out and eat some dirt. Eat some dirt. Just grab a fistful of it. Put it in your mouth. You heard it here. Right good. You heard it here. Go fucking put it in your mouth. You heard it here. Right.com slash Twitter slash JPEG dot MP4 said go eat some dirt or you're a pussy. <laughs> yeah, do it. <laughs> eat some dirt. Eat some rocks. Eat the dirt. Eat some rocks. Lick some rocks. Do you know the geology thing where they lick uh, stuff to figure out if it's bone or not? 
No, I did not. Know. Yeah, that's the thing that they'll do is they'll lick a lick something if they're not sure if it's a bone, like a fossil, it, because bones are porous, and so your tongue will kind of like stick on it a little bit more. Supposedly, I'm not gonna say I've tried this or I have not tried this, and I didn't notice a difference. But theoretically, this is things people say. I've. Uh, oh, this is theoretically you. You have done and this. I've, you have clearly done this. I mean, it is a thing people do in the field, and I may have tried to lick uh, one of my fossils to see if this was true, and I didn't really notice the difference. Maybe I needed to do it with a rock on hand to be like, oh, I see now. Yeah, you gotta compare it to a rock. You gotta lick some fossils and some rocks. Yeah. Um, so, um, <laughs> lick some rocks. What is going on anymore? Oh my god. Yeah, lick the fossil. Uh, Eat some dirt, lick a lick a lick some bones. Yeah, you wanna you wanna write nature, you need to become nature. <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta lick it, you gotta put it in your mouth. <laughs> oh my god. Solving this is all being cut right, right? Uh no. Alright. All of this is going every in. bit of it. All of this is going Alright. Um so uh, I'm so sorry, because that thing is really nice and lovely, and I've just been like, yeah, eat some dirt pussy. Um <laughs> so anyway. Uh, other things you can play with. This is, I, I call this advanced zone, uh, but it's one of my favorites, is speculative evolution. It's super fun to play with. Play with it. Ooh. Play with it. If you're not familiar with what speculative evolution is, the concept is basically, it's kind of in its name, is that you just imagine what life could look like under different conditions. So this could be on other planets. This could be on different versions of Earth or in different conditions. You can get really wild with it. Like, there's... One of the classic, like, speculative evolution things is, like, what if life had a different chemical makeup? Like, instead of carbon, we had silicon, because silicon is a really common element in the world. That would mean life is, like, really slow and bullshit or whatever. Um, and looks like rocks. I don't think that's true, but it's stuff that people do. And one guy I recommended as Wayne Barlow... Um, who's also famous for his depictions of hell. He did a really, really good art book um, called Expedition that was basically a speculative evolution art book on a, about a planet and just came up with all sorts of different life based on it. So you kind of go as science heavy as you want on that. You know, you will, if you play around with that, you will run into insufferable nerds. But you can have a lot of fun with that. And you, it can be a good way to kind of engage with the science too. I love speculative evolution stuff. Good and bad. So, or... Mm. More science-heavy based and maybe a little bit more relaxed. I think that's a better way to put it rather than good or bad. Because if it's fun enough. Oh, another great example of speculative evolution um, is the movie uh, Troll Hunter. It's the movie, not like the... Oh, that's a great movie. Yeah, that's some good... That's some good... That's some really fun speculative evolution. I think that does a really good balance of uh, explaining things in like a kind of like, that makes sense way, but also not losing the fun of of a troll. So... um, and it's just a super fun, super fun movie. Also has a great sense of place because it's in Norway. There's lots of great shots. Yeah, it's it's a cold as ball play, cold as balls place. Yeah, so play respective evolution. Why not? It's not it's yeah. not a crime. Not yet. Yeah. I don't know. I live in not Florida, yet. so it does have evolution. Yeah, Ron yeah, like, will definitely legalize it. Pretty. You soon. made their gleep glops too woke. <laughs> you're going <laughs> you're going to like super jail now or whatever. God, every day I wake up in Florida. Bad. He sucks. You want to talk about a deviation from nature? No speculative evolution can can figure out what's what's going on with him. What the sand is? Him and those eggs at the county at the state fair in Iowa. I don't. I don't even know how to explain. Wait, what eggs? Oh, I definitely, I definitely posted this in the Discord. But there is a clip. 
I could send it to you, but there is a clip with episode notes. A clip of Ron DeSantis at the Iowa State Fair because all those little freaks were running out there for primaries, like, you know? Right, right, and, right. And uh, he was at this booth, and they had a bunch of peeled, hard-boiled eggs with, like, a popsicle stick stuck in them. And he was just okay. handing out these, like, eggs on a stick to people. It was... Yum. I'm, and then people were like, oh, this is the fair. And I'm like, no, no, I've never been to... I've, I've been to a lot of fairs, and I'll give it to you that there's some there's some fucked up food that happens at the fair, but I've never been to a fair where there was just, like, an egg on a stick. And so you have to live in that reality, which is a lot to begin with. And then you're, so you're getting... Let's imagine... So this is nature. This is place. I'm doing it for you guys right now. Here's, a, like, a model. Um, imagine your protagonist goes in and is like, wow, that's weird. There's, like, an egg on a stick. It's Iowa, so it's, like, 90 degrees and corn smelling. And then you look up, and it's just, like, a Ron, like, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is handing you an egg, like, on a stick. Like, Can I offer you an egg in this trying time? He didn't even do that. He's just like, here you go, because he's weird. Yeah, he thinks this is normal to hand people eggs <laughs> on sticks. He doesn't know that that's not a normal food to give people. A normal person might give people, like, lollipops or something, you know. Yeah, just just a weird weird thing like i it's fucking hard-boiled ass yeah just, and people are like oh that's like a midwest fair thing i'm like no 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 this is no, it isn't. no it's not i've been to midwest fairs and but never got no. an egg on a stick we'll give you like a deep fried oreo and i know that's like really decadent and american but it's like it's an oreo it's like a real food okay but deep fried oreos taste pretty they're good they're so fucking deep fried like they're really so tasty good. they're 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 immoral but they're very delicious it's just like i gotta egg. give them that this is an egg from the, the governor of florida <laughs> It's a, it's a fucking egg. Yeah, go reenact that scene from Cool Hand Luke. Go do it. Yeah, so just... Go eat 50 eggs in an hour. Yeah, and just... It's, anyway, so there's a place for you. Think of that. There's there's a good speculative fiction like story, and I'm gonna make my um, squeak or uh, eggs into fair story. I don't, even know, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. What are we talking about? Nature? Nature came- We were talking about nature. We were talking about Ron DeSantis. We were talking about Florida probably banning nature. Yeah. Banning um, weird little guys in fiction. Dude, they're, yeah, they'll, they're going to build over nature, but then don't worry, the ocean will complain, claim that. So, um, yeah. yeah, oh, I put, I said this earlier, but yeah, using nature as a sense of place to set a mood, it's cliche, but it works, goddammit. So just- it works. There's a reason people do it. It's a good idea. And I mean, nature does affect your mood. It does. There's a reason why we go to certain places on vacation, because it's easier to be kind of relaxed when you're on a beach than when you're not on a beach. And this could be a great place, too, if you if you want to play with expectations, do that. Find, like I said, find the love and the beauty in places that don't, you know, expect it. You, you could you could really zoom in and you see, like, a, a weed patch, but that's full of life and could be very diverse. So, like, Zoom in on that. You can play into or defy expectations, but you gotta do something with it, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it it works, and so and I mean in general, humans relate to nature. I think something we talked about a little bit earlier is kind of the, and maybe this can be a good segue into why should we even care about nature? Like this is all well and good, but why do I give a fuck? And there's lots of great stories that that don't talk about trees, which there are. They would be better if they had tr- talking about like what's the sexiest tree. Um. I, I, mm-hmm. I hold, um, but they don't need to always necessarily. When we were talking about that Western model of like not only manifest destiny, but I think also this idea of nature as this really, I think a lot of people still hold this idea that nature can only be, is only valuable or can re- consider nature even if it's a place that's going to completely untouched or very little impact with human society. And that's a very 
Western, it's definitely in a very kind of problematic Western association with nature, um, and also just not the reality of the world, um, because every place is touched by human impact. Um, Specifically, they've been, (laughs) I mean, kind of in grim ways sometimes. I think I saw it read somewhere, there's like, yeah, they keep trying to find ants that don't have microplastics in them, and they can't find any ants that haven't been, been like, "Mm, plastic. But also going farther back, just like indigenous people, people lived on the land and worked it. That's the reason America looks the way it does. It's not because some pioneer came in like, whoa, I built it all up. No, it's because some indigenous group, some nation of people built a trail there. Most of your roads are based on indigenous trails. So to act like the land wasn't, you know, there's humans weren't working with the land is just false. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's something Specfic can really explore. Um, and, like, you brought up the example of, like, uh, cyberpunk stories or, like, cities and stuff like that. Like, that could be a really way to challenge our understanding of, of what is natural and what should be cared about. Yeah, cyberpunk stories tend not to have any kind of animal of any kind in it. There's no, there's usually very little in the way of an- plants or animals in any way. But it doesn't have to be that way. One example you brought up, too, is, like, what if you're doing a space opera on a ship? What if you're doing a generational ship story? I think it'd be worth thinking of. People like looking at outside and nature and what do you do when you're in a story that that is not a possibility. And how do you deal with that, I think, could come up with some really interesting things. And maybe they don't actually solve that because it's an Elon Musk generation ship, so they're just like, it's fine. And then it catches fire and it also kills a bunch of, like, alien children and ambulance workers. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so epic bacon. I think, like, using nature in your spec fic stories also, I mean, writing is the great empathy exercise, right? That's why I think a big reason why we read. And I think this can be a great way to, like, just get empathy with the non-human world around you, which I think is really critical in these times uh, for many reasons. <laughs> if you haven't looked outside... There's a bit of a, a climate crisis going on, and not to say reading a book uh, about the climate crisis is going to solve it or change the mind of the Shell executives, but I think it's still important. It still can create that empathy. I also think it could give you a place, especially when you get like good um, speculative fiction that's discussing the reality of climate change. I think it can it can help you with kind of what to expect, and also honestly, like. I know something we've all been talking about recently kind of in our social groups is grieving and dealing with what's going on in the climate. So I think these these art, these expressions of art can be a place to, to do that and just at least if nothing else be like, yeah, I hear you. This sucks that the world is becoming worse and lesser as time goes on. So I don't know. That's kind of why I think it's important to, to approach it. Also, it's just like good craft and you should just do that. But also, again, more, I guess, more esoteric, like why should we bother doing it? That's yeah. kind of my reasoning. Also, it's just fun and cool, you know? Yeah. You get to appreciate the world around you a little bit. If you learn, you get really into, like, I want to learn the plants for my story, and then all of a sudden now you can go out and you'll appreciate what's around you and get to see a lot of cool stuff that you didn't realize. I always think about the first time I, when I was first birding, the first time I would see a bird that I didn't know what it was. Like, let's say a red-winged blackbird. I'd be like, oh, that's my first red-winged blackbird. And then I noticed, I'm like, this bird's everywhere. And it's doing all these cool mm. things, and I never even noticed it. I think, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I think that's a really cool experience to, like, uncover this knowledge that just because you identify it, now it's like, wow, I've unlocked this cool knowledge about the world that was always here, but I unlocked it. It's just like, 
I don't know, leveling up in a video game or something like that. I don't know. I put my uh, knowledge stats in, and now I know uh, red-winged blackbirds mm-hmm. are out there. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, it has been about an hour. So why don't we start winding down? Before we go, what do you have to promote? Nothing too official. Like I said, uh, read Andy, uh, Andy, Andy County, Sand County Almanac. I put up this man that's been dead for like 30 years. If you want to follow me, I'm on social media. I'm still on Twitter. I ain't calling it X. It's stupid. So that's Weather Goose One. And then I am on Blue Sky and I'm kind of shifting over there. I think a lot of us are. I believe my username over there is Goose Gloriosa. I will warn that um, I am, I don't know if you found any of this conversation insightful, but I will be less insightful, especially because it's football season. Just keep that in mind if you just do it. Um, but yeah, and also I'll plug, go out and take a walk. Go look at a bird. Have a fun time. Yeah. Enjoy it. Yeah, eat some dirt. <laughs> eat, eat, lick. Pick up a handful of dirt from the ground and put it in your mouth. And make sure there's lots of glass and just plastic. fucking in do it. <laughs> Oh, do it! Oh my God! Don't be a puss. <laughs> that's that's don't, it. Don't, don't do it. That's... Don't sue us if you get sick for me. This is dirt, uh, parody, parody, parody. This is a parody. Yeah, parody in Minecraft. In Minecraft, in um, Minecraft. you know. <laughs> yeah, but in conclusion, go out and touch some grass. It's good for your writing. So, thank you for coming on and talking about this. Well, thank you for for having me, and uh, yeah, like I said, you can hit me up on social media if you want to, like I said, I love this shit, we can talk more about it, like I said, we we just scratched the surface, you know, of this, but yeah, again, just thanks for, for having me on. Yeah, and thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittystasis.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittystasis.com. you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. This has been a Kitty Steezes production. KittySneezes.com In color